DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Sally Reed, who is the author of three books of poetry. She has an MA in creative writing from the University of South Dakota, and she is the poet-in-residence of the Hermitage of the Three Holy Hierarchs and lives near Rome. She is a fellow of the Institute of Creative and Critical Writing at Birmingham City University in the United Kingdom. With Sally Reed, we go inside the pages of Night's Bright Darkness, a Modern Conversion Story, published by Ignatius Press. Sally, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I have so enjoyed your poetry for so long that when I heard that this particular work was coming forward from a good friend of mine, Vivian Dudreau at Ignatius Press, I was just, I was excited. And Oh, I'm so pleased. <laughs> and then when I read it, it kind of took my breath away. It, it is your story and how you tell it is, it's like an entrance into mystery, into the mystery of our faith, that mystery of the gospel that Paul talks about. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm just so pleased because it was a mystery to me. And, you know, I didn't know how I would write it or, or at what point I would write it. And then it just really felt that God just helped me to put the whole thing down. There, that God. Did you, a good friend of yours now, huh? I mean, someone you have <laughs> just recently got to know, shall we say, in the last several years. It's true. Tell, why don't you share with folks your, the, the, those aspects of your story that you feel is important for them to know? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was really raised an atheist, and uh, I come from, I'm British, and Britain is a very, very secular society, which I think is very different from America. You know, most people in Britain are non-religious, so it's very much in the culture that anything to do with religion is a bit strange. But my, my father was actively atheist in the sense that he taught us that, you know, there was definitely no God and that organized religion was really evil. And that I should never kneel to anything and that, you know, Christians were just in you know, a kind of stupid and, you know, who cares if one guy got crucified long ago, hundreds of people got crucified, you know, it didn't matter. So I really had it drummed into me. But as I say in my book, I, I, my father was a wonderful man who, who brought me up to be very altruistic. So I had this sense of altruism and um, a sense of, you know, why I would be here on the planet from a very, very young age. So hence I went into nursing and I wanted to to do good for humanity, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and then spool forward, I became a poet because writing was really my vocation and still atheist. Spool forward, I was 39 years old and married and with a, a daughter. And I was beginning to write uh, another book, which wasn't poetry. It was about uh, female sexuality because I wanted to investigate all kinds of things that I thought women were being done a disservice by in society, such as contraception. And, you know, I'd been through the whole dating culture in London through the 1990s, and it's not easy. And I think contraception does women a lot of harm in many ways, the pill, etc. And I'd had my heart broken many times. And a doctor friend and I decided to write a book to really help women understand their own bodies. This was the whole objective of the book. Mm -hmm. But she, as a doctor, was going to do the, the biological stuff, and I was going to do the um, sociological stuff. So I was set to interview all kinds of women, um, you know, straight, gay, non-religious, Muslim, Christian, you name it, Jewish, 
And I really had trouble getting the religious women to talk to me. And I live in near Rome, as I, you know, I've lived in Rome since that time. So I, I could see there were plenty of nuns around and, and I'd befriended some Catholic women who were the mothers of small children who played with my daughter, but none of them would talk to me. So I ended up emailing a priest who was a friend of a friend. And that was, it was March 2010. I was an atheist. <laughs> and that was the beginning of this incredible, incredible journey because I started to argue with him and about the church and I couldn't understand how this man who was so intelligent and so nice and so kind could, could be a Catholic. Because to me, the Catholic church really epitomized what was wrong with religion. It was mm -hmm. so countercultural and seemed to deny women their rights and, and all the rest of it. And that was when the child abuse stories were really coming out. So right. I was furious with the church. It's really extraordinary when you think about it, that when you talk about how your father brought you up, that in a very real way, that turned out to be a gift. Because, as you said in the book, it helped you to be able to look at things as they are. And yeah. that affected you in your conversations then with the priest that would come forward. It did. I think what my father gave me was integrity mm -hmm. and, and a thirst for the truth. And I, you know, I, I could never stand sort of half-truths or anything um, that struck me as a bit off. I, I, I'm, I think I'm quite good at sniffing out when someone's not telling the truth. And I could sense, perhaps, perhaps in this priest, I could sense someone who was very sound, actually, and I couldn't figure it out. And I was saying to him, how, I literally said, why don't you leave the church? You know how corrupt it is. You know the bad things these other priests have done. How can you, how can you let your name be added to that church? How can you be part of it? But then, as I, as I always say when telling this story, pe people have this urge, I think, to ask me, what did he say to convince you? Because mm -hmm. people these days, they want to know what to say to atheists and their family or their friends. And, you know, I it was nothing he said. It was something at that point. He was a very steady witness, okay? But then at that point, there were other things that happened. And it was like my soul had reached a point where it was ready to receive God. And that was not easy. That was a painful process. And I'd gone through some deep, dark stuff beforehand, if you like, over the years. And at that point, God, I seemed to have these very, very intense experiences of God. And there were three that spring. And the first one, I came to understand that there was a God, which is a huge, huge thing for an atheist because it takes your breath away. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, on the one hand, you, you realize that you're loved beyond measure and that you're known. But on the other hand, I didn't know what the God was. What kind, you know, was it the Christian God? Was it the God of Islam? I had no idea what the God was. Yeah, you weren't sure what you wanted to become at, at a certain point or where where do I identify as it right now? Exactly. We, we, we have this thing yeah. about identifying ourselves. So what do we identify with? And so. Well, yeah, and I, and I said to Father Gregory, this priest, I said, okay, I, I can see that there's a creator because I've had this sort of massive epiphany, if you like, because I wasn't praying. I didn't know how to pray. And. And I said, you know, how do I know that God, that God is good? How do I know that this creator is a good thing? And then over that spring, I had these incredible encounters. Um, I had this big encounter with Christ where I finally realized, you know, I was in a church and as I say in the book, and I, I was crying because I was so churned up. And, and I looked up to this stained glass window and said to Christ aloud, if you're there, you have to help me. And this presence just sort of came down and my tears dried and I just felt almost physically lifted. And, and I walked out a Christian. I mean, I, it was the turning point of my whole life. It's so beautiful, Sally, the way you count that, because, I mean, that really is 
the mystery of it all, isn't it? Sometimes we try to put words in it, and we forget that when St. Paul, he literally is taken to the ground and blinded, and he has this encounter. We forget that he went away for three years to be able to absorb it all. We forget that St. Benedict, he you know, had this great revelation and he had to go up into a cave for, for three years. I mean, you had St. Ignatius. It goes on and on and on where you have these moments and it, you have to allow yourself just to kind of steep in the mystery of it all, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know what to do. I don't, you know, when I walked out of the church, I, I don't, I didn't tell anybody. I think possibly Mel, my best friend, was told at some point, but I didn't, I didn't, how do you explain that? I certainly didn't tell my husband that night. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. the strangest thing, but I knew I was a Christian and I started to pray the Our Father. So I had that identity. I was a Christian, um, which was joyful, incredibly joyful, but I, I, I didn't want to be Catholic. <laughs> now, it, it, yeah, and you recount this beautifully in the book, Night's Bright Darkness, a modern conversion story. We're talking with Sally Reed about this wonderful book that Ignatius Press has brought forward. But you, you recount in the book that it's, it's one of those things where when you knew you were a Christian, but to be a Christian, unlike all the other religions that you kind of, you know, do I become this, that, or the other thing, a Christian, it's an encounter with the Trinity. God is a Trinity. So to say you you knew you were a Christian, you know, even today, so many of us, I mean, we have no clue how to relate to that no, no, I think it's true. I think that um, it's something, and also I feel that, you know, people, you know, I technically I was a Christian even before because I was baptized. My mother baptized me for social reasons. Mm-hmm. So you know, I had that seed of baptism in me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also when we become Christian, it, it's complex, isn't it? Because how many churches are there, especially in the States? Right. And and, and I, I was very drawn to the Quakers because as an atheist, I had I had really appreciated their thoughts on pacifism and um, no hierarchy, and um, you didn't really have to believe anything in particular. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I liked all of that. But it's funny how I knew once I once I was drawn to Christ, I knew instinctively that I could not go there. I mean, I, the pacifism, yeah, I still have a lot of strong leanings that way. But um, I knew that it, I couldn't get close to Christ that way. And it became really clear very, very quickly that to get close to Christ, I had to be in a Catholic church. And then when I understood about why that was with the host and the Eucharist, then it became clear that I had to be Catholic. What happened to me, because I, I can't emphasize enough to people how much it's like something penetrated me from the outside, you know, it's something so tangible. And what happened was so strange, like the experiences that I recount in the book, they were so particular that as a writer, I didn't know how to describe them for a very long time. And I didn't know how to categorize them. I, I'd never come across anything like it. But later, when I started listening to people's conversion stories, I was struck by similarities, mm. by people who, who said similar type things, you know, like um, just the other day someone read from a conversion story about someone being on their knees in a church and Christ coming to them, and Simone Weil, the mm-hmm. same thing happened to her. So it's amazing, isn't it, how those, those circumstances, are, the situations are similar and yet unique. You know what I love so much about your story is that in, in your writing, it's almost as though you have this experience, and yet you're describing it through the eyes of the experience. It's like the world looks different now. I think it's very true. And I think that after a conversion, a lot of people talk about the world being you know, in color for the first time or being three-dimensional for the first time. It's very true. And I think that uh, 
what, what I'm glad that I was able to do with the book, and I think it was really through grace that I could do it, is I could um, make concrete and make clear some of those experiences. Well, let's, well, let's talk about some of those relationships you formed. And one of those, uh, uh, an important one, was with another poet who lived in, in Spain and wrote wonderful prose about the, that mysterious experience. And, of course, I'm talking about John of the Cross. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, that was amazing. I, you know, Father Gregory was very good at not, uh, not giving me sort of piles of apologetics to read, which I think would have been a mistake at that point when I was trying to decide where I belonged within Christianity. Mm-hmm. So he didn't like hurl the catechism at me or anything. But he would just give me things and suggest to me things that he thought I would like as a poet. And so he sent me a piece of St. John of the Cross and, and I was fascinated. And what's, what was wonderful for me about John of the Cross was um, I could relate to how he perceived God because I had only seen the, um, the very kind of kitsch side of Catholicism. And I'd only seen, I'd heard people talk about the way God was manipulating things and, oh, I missed the train. Thank God that mm-hmm. God made the train late, you know, which I found really hard to swallow. And <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah. He's a conductor. You know, it's, yeah. it's something I, you know, uh-huh. um, it has its place, but that kind of theodicy is, is not up my street. So, so when I read John of the Cross and he was talking about this darkness and this, um, in a sense, the, the ineffable God, I, I could really relate to that. And it was very reassuring to me. Mm-hmm. Because that's how I first perceived God was that as this, um, I could talk about this simmering black sea, and it's just this immense darkness that's a very, very long way away, and yet at the same time, very immediate to us. Well, so, and, yeah. And then he led you to others like Teresa of Avila. And yeah, the- yeah, Who, who's amazing too. I mean, that, that's the other thing is that um, I remember literally thinking as an atheist, um, wow, you know, I've read not everything, but I was like, I'd read so much and I was like, oh, is there nothing I can discover anymore? Like if only I could rediscover Shakespeare. And then when I became Catholic, it's just a whole, it's a whole other universe of things to read. That's these immense classics. Part of, you know, even Teresa Avila's story is that grappling with the past and reconciling the choices that, and quite frankly, the sin and being freed from it ultimately when i read Teresa of avila i'm always wondering what she did that was yeah, really, what was it yeah <laughs> that was so wrong yeah <laughs> I, bet, I bet it wasn't much but, but, well but, for um, the time maybe who knows you know <laughs> yeah well um i it's funny because i have to admit something that when i came into the church i never had a minute's preoccupation or worry that god would forgive all my sins mm-hmm. because i just i just knew and i and i knew that there was this line in my life where go pre-conversion um not that it didn't matter of course it mattered what i did but i I had no no worries that he that he would not convert would not uh, forgive me you know i just felt his mercy so strongly see that's um, grace that's grace right i know isn't that great you you hear the strangest things like dorothy day um had an abortion pre-conversion and and i've heard catholics say oh you know she can't be a saint because she had that abortion well that's just crazy yeah yeah i agree in this journey for you then, and and I brought it back into the the mystery of it all, it's found in beauty, isn't it? I mean, you begin to see the truly what's beautiful, all of its different forms, whether it's in music and or art, and it and it speaks to each person individually. I mean, as an artist, as someone who, particularly as a poet, that is something that for many it's hard to grasp, isn't it? 
Yeah, I guess so. I think in in our culture today, we're um, we're taught and trained to to recoil from beauty, and that that's really struck me lately. You know, when I was um, writing poetry as an atheist in um, in the London culture, uh, we were conditioned to write poems that were very brutal, and to and to turn everything on its head. You know, it's deconstructionism. And um, and now as a writer, I feel really liberated because I feel like I can write beautiful things, and it doesn't mean that they're cliched. It really doesn't. Beauty is far more interesting than people think. Yeah. And I think, you know, and, and yeah, and the, the music of, of the church and, and art, the art, religious art is just so incredible in a way that we've really lost with contemporary art. Mm-hmm. We've lost it terribly. You know, they, they, people avoid, they run from beauty. It's quite strange. For you, it's not like you entered into a program and the result is you graduated a Christian. But it, it's that that mystagogia, that that continually living in that mystery, that is that a challenge? Yeah, well, I think I think we have to. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a nonstop process, isn't it? And I think that um, for me, I was beginning from from scratch in the sense that I'd never prayed before, and so it was like you know, what is prayer? And when I began to pray, um, I didn't know what was normal or what wasn't normal, which might sound strange, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I couldn't figure out whether what I was experiencing was a normal process for every Christian or whether I was experiencing something really heightened. And I think both of those things are true. But I've since discovered that people do have actually quite mystical experiences. It's much more common than we might think. But on the other hand, there are many people who don't have anything approaching what I experienced. But that doesn't mean that they're not, um, they're not close to God. Mm-hmm. Because I think God, you know, gives different consolations at different times. So there was all that to sort out in my head. Um, and, yeah, and about, you know, prayer and how we regulate our prayer life and how we relate to God and and the whole examination of the soul. You know, I talked about the fact that I felt God's mercy so much um, regarding my past sins. But it's funny that now, six years later, if I if I sin at all, it's much more, I'm much more aware of it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah, much more aware of it. <laughs> it's the Catholic guilt. <laughs> that's it. That's it. It's a good thing, I think. It, it is. It brings us to a very high standard when you have to go to confession. <laughs> well, it is. You hear stories about how John Paul and Teresa of Calcutta, well, even the little ones, that they were going to confession every chance they could, if not sometimes daily. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I heard that John Paul II went to confession every day. And I again, I think, what did he confess? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. You know, that, I mean, that's that's the other thing that um, it, sometimes when one goes to confession, one can confess something and, and the priest will say, oh, I don't think that's a sin. And, yeah. you know, that's difficult too. Because I think that the holier we get, because we're all called to be holy, mm-hmm. and the holier we get, more aware we are of the flaws in our character and and you know various things so yeah but uh, the mystery thing i think as well um again coming back to the question that people keep asking me how do i convert my atheist friends this is i think central is that it is mystery it's mystery and we um we don't perhaps have the tools to just go in and convert somebody it's a supernatural experience and it's a supernatural process it seems to me that the part of the experience for you was, as you talked about Father Gregory, is his availability, and he just listened. And then he responded yeah. to whatever it was that you were questing for. And so it's just that being present. 
and ultimately, to a certain degree, in the very Christian way of love, because God yeah. is love, and so He gets in there somehow. And we just don't know how it happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the other, the other important person was Christina, my my very Catholic friend, who was wonderful and very devout, and her presence and her witness uh, to Christ. You know, because even as an atheist, when I would sit in her kitchen, she would talk about Christ and talk about Mary in a very natural way, and that was so important. And not not to say that this was the wrong thing for her to do, but it's interesting that she did give me the catechism in the in the late spring, early summer of that year. And um, I remember that I, as I say in the book, I read it and I and I said, you know, it made me want to throw up. It's it's a not <laughs> it's a it's big handbook. it's a big book, yeah. <laughs> I was appalled. I was appalled. And yet, by the end of the summer, once I'd um, prayed and prayed and just fallen in love with Christ so much more and done all kinds of reading around it, then it just fell into place. And I was ready. I was ready to hear it. As the poet, how has this encounter with the mystery of the Trinity, this, this relationship, how has it affected you, if you don't mind me asking? It's really freed me up, surprisingly. I, I was worried that it would stop me writing. And lots of people told me that it would stop me writing. Mm. But actually, I feel I feel free. I feel like I'm in possession of the truth and I can write much more and much more freely. I don't think I've ever written so naturally before. And um, and I'm writing prose, which might sound strange, but to me, the, the line between poetry and prose is not such a great one to cross. Mm -hmm. um, I think I write in a poetic way as a prose writer anyway, but right. I'm writing a novel and, um, and it's, I just loving it. It's very much about beauty and it's about the ugly things in life too, but it's a lot about beauty. So I love it. How be how beautiful. <laughs> you don't mind me being so cliche. I keep bringing up all these other members of the cloud of witnesses when I talk to you, it, but I can't help it. I was thinking of Ella or Balak, you know, he started out fighting, 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 and then he it, it did it, freedom, and then he was prolific. I mean, he mm -hmm. just, he outdid his pal Chesterton in, in the amount and what he was able to do. It's that cooperation, isn't it, into the, the artist's heart, maybe? Yeah, it's the cooperation with the divine, and I think what people have to realize is that when you don't believe in God, you are, you're not free because you're in, you're in thrall to the, uh, the culture surrounding you, to the editors and to the public and to the newspapers who all think you should think a certain way. You know, that's far more stifling than believing in God. Do you have a sense of the, the personhood of God in that trinity? I mean, has that been something that has surprised, uh, challenged, or delighted you? Oh, delighted. I mean, I, I feel, I still feel Christ's presence just so powerfully. And um, I realize this must speak of my immaturity spiritually, but I, I still feel his presence, especially, you know, receiving communion. I just am blown away so many times by the absolute intangibility of God. And, and you think, you know, what a gift, you know, primarily, what an absolute gift for God to, to bring himself to us. Mm -hmm. And to leave us with the Eucharist, you know, not to leave us, but to, to, you know, bring us the Eucharist every day because it's just so wonderful. I think sometimes we're mistaken in thinking that somehow I have to, even even when they spoke of Mother Teresa and a dark night or how John, John of the Cross describes it, it's not about depression. There's never a doubt. That's where the joy is. I think so. And I think it's it's such a mystery. I mean, if you think about, you know, Mother Teresa, she she had this so-called dark night. Um, and yet, you know, everyone that met her says that she was there was such joy in her it just shone out of her face. And it's that's hard for any of us to really understand who haven't been in that position. Because I mean, I, I, I feel I do feel the consolation of Christ very, very vividly. 
Um, so it's hard for me to understand how that would feel if I couldn't feel that. But evidently, she, she had this incredible joy, you know, notwithstanding that. It reminds me of another woman that you got to know, and her name was Mary. Yeah, it wasn't for me. And as I say um, in the book, I mean, she has her own chapter because my path with Mary was, um, it started long, long before this happened, which was so strange mm-hmm. because I had this um, this fascination with her face in art because she seemed so submissive and she seemed so, you know, passive. And, and I, I thought, I just used to wonder what happened to the woman, Mary of Nazareth, that day when the angel came because I didn't believe that. So I was thinking, you know, what, was she raped? You know, I mean, really, I would think uh-huh. all those things. And sure. I, even, I even wrote about them. Um, and I always, always had a picture of her on my wall, you know, which is so odd. And I used to collect pictures of Mary. And so it was like she was at my shoulder for, for years before I, before I came to the conversion. And then it was only really after I came into the church that I turned to her properly and really began praying the rosary every day. And, and I've, I've just always felt her presence. Yeah. And also her profound um, power and her profound courage, which is all through faith. People see her as a very, you know, well, I mean, atheists and in the secular culture see her as very passive and as very, um, uh, you know, submissive. And of course, she is in the right way. But, you know, what an amazing courage all that all that produced, that faith in God produced, because she was, you know, an incredibly, and is an incredibly brave woman. When you look at now your fellow brothers and sisters in the Catholic faith who, well, let's just be real, they're just not where you're at. I mean, they don't have the, maybe the appreciation. And I think, I think the main problem, and I, this is with myself as well, I think we all suffer from it, you know, in various degrees from time to time, is that the main problem is we, we, we underestimate grace. We underestimate what God can really do in our lives. And I think this comes into every aspect where there is most difficulty in the Western world when they see Catholicism now, which is in areas of homosexuality and divorce and remarriage and all the rest of it. I think the big thing that people won't confront is, well, how much do we really think God can do for us? How much, how important is God? And is he enough in our lives? And I think the problem is that many of us drift and end up thinking, oh, you know, God's all very well and the church is all very well, but I have to have things this way. I have to have this relationship and in this particular way. Um, It takes a brave person to say, actually, grace can do so much. And can and can change your life immeasurably. You have to trust. You have to be like Mary, almost like stepping out into nothing, but God will catch you. And you find yourself in the heart of the the city of saints. You're you're right there in Rome, surrounded by an incredible culture, Catholic culture. And yet, I've been blessed to travel there. There's still a kind of a sadness when you realize people are walking past all of it. Yeah. And the busyness of a day, yeah. the heart kind of aches a little bit, doesn't it? It does. It does. It, it's. Um, I mean, I write about this particular um, blessed nun who's um, the blessed nun of my daughter's school down the road here, and her body lies in the chapel. It's it's incorrupt, and the, literally the chapel is across the road from the school. And when I first discovered this lady, you know, I would go and pray with her. This with this body, this nun's body, and I I couldn't get over that the other mothers were just. No, you know, coming and going, and I wanted to say, do you not know? That's right. <laughs> What's in here? That's right. Yeah, but that's the mystery. That's the, that's the hidden mystery, and actually, more people know and appreciate it, perhaps, than we realize. <laughs> yes, but that's that's grace. Now we're back to grace again in in yeah. so many ways. Well, Sally, any final thoughts? 
just thank you for having me and just I feel so blessed to have written the book I, I have to say I I didn't know whether to do it and I and I and what I wanted to do was encapsulate that love and that experience in a way that was going to last and um, I'm just so thankful to God that I've done it and I hope that if it can bring one person closer to Christ then that's my job done so well job well done job well done Thank you so much, you. and I hope you have a joy-filled and a blessed Christmas and New Year. You too. Thank you. Happy Christmas. All right. God bless. God bless. With Sally Reed, we've gone inside the pages of Night's Bright Darkness, a modern conversion story. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to ignatius.com the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.